Welcome to the Communicating Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colm Harney, a dentist with a special interest in all aspects of communication in healthcare. Each episode, I'll be having a conversation with inspirational practitioners to discover how they communicate effectively, creating exceptional relationships with their patients and fulfilling, rewarding careers. For clinicians who care, let's find out how the experts do it. My guest today on the podcast is Dr. Graham Carmichael. Graham is a board-certified prosthodontist working in the private and public sector. He's a speaker, educator, and researcher. I've known Graham for a long time, since I did the restoring and implant course at his practice, and then subsequently attending study groups, where I really got to appreciate the scope of Graham's knowledge. Graham has always been very approachable. As a valued colleague, I can flick a quick email question to, or ask to assess and treat a complex dental case. This conversation really just scratches the surface of what Graham does, but hopefully gives an insight into the dedication, hard work and passion it takes to practice dentistry at such a high level. Thank you, Graham, for joining me this evening for the Communicating Health podcast. Graham, certainly for most West Australian listeners will know you, you're a board certified prosthodontist working in the private sector and the public sector as well. You're an educator and speaker nationally and internationally. I've been doing my research on you here, Graham. Yeah. And, and so you're based in men in your private practice in the Branamark Centre in the centre of Perth, which is an implant and prosthodontic practice. Is there anything you want to add to that? bio or background, Graham? Probably the only other thing is is I'm also a senior clinical lecturer at the University of Western Australia and yep. involved in the teaching of the undergraduate and postgraduate prosthodontic students at the university there. And get, getting into it, what we usually do is we usually skirt around the bio and the background, first of all. Your journey into dentistry Doing high school and doing your year 12 exams, was dentistry something you always wanted to do? Yes, dentistry was something even even through earlier high school. It was a career of choice. I don't have any dentists in the family, but it was always a profession that appealed to me. I never saw myself as working in front of a computer all day, and I I liked the ability to be working with people and, and helping people. And yeah, dentistry was just always a draw card for me. Was there a particular dentist that you did know in terms of your family dentist or somebody who you were able to talk to or ask some questions of or how did it all come about in terms of crystallizing that decision? Yeah, I did have a family dentist, but not one that I was particularly close to who who acted as a mentor in that regard. Mm-hmm. I... I suppose just from the, the context of you know thinking about careers, things like medicine and and looking at that, but I, I didn't like the prospect of just working with you know sick people in that regard, and yeah. I probably hadn't thought about the different areas of medicine. But dental was just always was always an appeal. Being able to work you know closely with people, working with hands, being able to have a direct result to that particular patient was something which I just believed would, would be along my interest. 
It's interesting when I ask that question, everybody's story is quite different. A lot of people get there by circuitous routes where they want to do something else and they end up in dentistry. And then there's people like you and probably myself as well, where we just wanted to do dentistry. That's right. Yeah. No, I, I don't yeah. think I had a, a backup plan. It was it was dentistry or nothing. <laughs> yes, it was quite fairly similar. Yeah, sounds familiar. And then when you got into dental school, you studied in UWA, I believe? I did. So I did a science degree before doing dentistry. So I did a, a double major in anatomy and human biology and biochemistry and graduated from that prior to going into dentistry. When I did my undergraduate dentistry, the traditional path was to do one year of science and then the four years of dental. But uh, I probably played too much rugby in my first year, which distracted me from my studies. And okay. and so then, you know, ended up progressing through the whole science degree bef- before going into dentistry. So then, so I did my undergraduate uh, dentistry at UWA as well and finished that in 2003. And then was it straight into private practice somewhere in Perth? I started uh, at a, a private practice in the northern suburbs and um, full-time immediately after graduation. I worked a lot of evenings and weekends, both Saturdays and, and Sundays. And that was really good because that gave me a lot of exposure and uh, to all facets of dentistry. And I used to see a lot of trauma patients over the weekends and saw patients referred from sort of one of the nearby hospitals. And so that then I think really helped my early career in being able to develop my skill set quite quickly. And also I I remember I used to have Tuesdays off, which I then used to spend time with with various dentists and specialists, again, just to help broaden and, and enhance my skills in my early practicing career. Okay. So even even in the early days, you know, you were quite deep into dentistry and you were looking were you looking f- further ahead at doing specialization or doing some something like you you're doing now? I think it was always the it was always the goal was to specialize after after doing my undergraduate training and in the in the final year of my undergraduate program where we had the option of doing electives I spent some time with prosthodontist Dr Tim Ewan down in Bunbury and then also at King's College in London where I spent some time in the in the pros and uh, maxillofacial departments at guys King's College there. And so I think it was certainly my my goal to specialise, but I also didn't want to specialise immediately after completing my undergraduate. I, I wanted to, to spend the time and develop my skills, to, which I thought would give me the opportunity before embarking into PROS program to have a, a really good rounded skill set and understanding of dentistry, things that you can only learn by actually treating patients, not just things from a book. Yes, I get that. And again, there there are a number of different schools of thought. Previous interview has said go go early and suppose it depends on the specialization as well. Some some are more suited to going early and some like yours, I I think you you would have to have a, a good foundation and a base before you go early. Yes, I definitely agree with that. So I think programs like paediatrics or endodontics or where the the general day-to-day practice would be very different from what you'd be doing in the specialty program and those specialties would you know would not necessarily need to spend as as long 
in general practice as I think what would be the case in pros because pros covers so many facets of dentistry from fixed removable implants, rehabilitation, worn dentition, aesthetic rehabilitations. It's a bit of everything. And so I think to get the the enhanced skills and get the most out of the program, spending yeah, spending some time in, in general practice allowed me to have a good solid base to build on. Mm-hmm. So what are you glad that you don't have to do now? Um, probably root canals, I think, would probably be my, my one thing, yeah. which I used to do a lot of. I, I used to do a lot of single and molar endo and uh, used to really you know enjoy that. But as my practice changed and I just found that I wasn't doing it routinely and majority of the patients that I would see had calcified pulp canal obliteration, calcified canals, pulp stones, and and I just found myself, you know, wading through all of that. The enjoyment of endodontics decreased. Um, so mm-hmm. that would probably be the one thing which, um, yeah, which I don't really miss. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine that's a fairly common answer as well. <laughs> <laughs> and then... You started doing some extra courses or do you had a mentor or how did it progress from there to where you are now? Well, I had some exposure into dental implants as an undergraduate and, and also through my elective programs. And then I did my my first training program at the Bronnemark Centre shortly after graduation in the restorative implant dentistry course, how to restore a, a single implant. And then it was a couple of years after that that I was invited to join the Bronnemark Centre, which was um, a nice phone call to receive. And yeah. so I ceased working up in the northern suburbs and, and commence in West Perth. And and initially when I joined the practice, the first few months were was more of, a, I suppose, a mini residency with Dr. Glenn Lidlow and Patrick Henry. In, yep. in just learning and developing a lot of skills in in a, a, a specialised prosthodontic practice and how to deal with the complex you know types of patients and the challenges that that come around with that and and then also then broadening my exposure into implant surgery and and all the techniques that are applicable from that aspect as well. Yeah, gee, sounds like a that's a wonderful opportunity. It must have been, yeah, I'm sure you probably still remember the the time, the moment you got that phone call. I think it was a Tuesday afternoon, so right. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, so what what was it that put you on the radar of the Branamark Center? I suppose it's not a a question that I've I've actually asked directly. I mean, I suppose I had had some some contact with the center previously and and through through the courses that I had done so being interested in in implants and being interested in all the the, the the facets of the of the practice one of my undergraduate sort of mentors worked at the at, at the center as well so I suppose that was that was one additional relationship that I had already established during the process yeah, uh, yeah. I haven't haven't ever sat down and asked what 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 that one key reason was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was probably a combination of things. And then since I I've known you over the last ten twelve years or so since you've been there and re- been referring in there, you've also gone on and done your official formal three years in in pros prosthodontic specialization. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
And I think, did you have young family at that stage? Not when I started. So my first daughter was born at the end of my first year of the, the specialty program. Any new new father or new parent, or there's always the, the challenges in adapting to to life with that. But um, doing that during a specialty program was was certainly taking it to that next level. But yes. um, Look, managed to get into a good routine and certainly thankful that I did. I don't think there's you, you can sort of plan for when family comes um, in all areas of life. And so certainly, yeah, certainly blessed to have uh, my my three daughters that we have now. But it's, yeah, every, everyone who does a program, some people do it with children, some people do it without children. And and so it's certainly possible. Yeah, there's there's obvious sacrifices that you make along the way. Yeah, and obviously it takes a lot of dedication to do that. You know, three years giving up time, earnings, and and obviously then uh, with a new family, uh, certainly dedicated to go down that road and stick with it. Is there one thing you wish somebody had told you about going down that road, either positive or negative, before you started? I suppose you did go in eyes relatively wide open. Glenn had done it a few years before you, I think. And- yeah, Glenn had, had finished the program. I certainly had seen and, and lived through his program, seeing him go through the process and all the challenges that, that come around with it. But I think until you actually do you know do a program yourself, it is something that's really hard to, to appreciate. I mean, I th- I'm very thankful that I did. I'm very thankful for having a, having a very supporting wife and family and and friends and and I mean I think probably one one aspect or one thing which would probably be the word you know to, would be challenging you know I think in a positive aspect being challenged to improve your skill set and your knowledge base and your understanding and, and ways of treating patients I think that was something which was which was fantastic uh, but challenging also in how how tough it is! You put your life on hold for for that three year period. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, I'm a, an avid Eagles, West Coast Eagles fan, and I remember. I think I went to, you know, I think three games over the whole three year period that, okay. that I was doing the, the program. I remember going to one of the games and leaving it at quarter time because. I wasn't concentrating on the game. I was just thinking about, you know, the wax up that I needed to do. And, and if I stayed for the game, then that would mean, you know, two hours less sleep that I'd be getting that night because, you know, what, what needed to be, to be done. And I think, yeah, no one, no one prepares you for that lack of sleep. You just learn to adapt and, and get through. I mean, it's, so it sounds full on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a very in, intense process. And, in my cohort, um, we had one one candidate dropped out. You know, during the first year, I think most most courses have a or a number of candidates that that drop out. You know, through the course for various reasons. Yeah, it's it is something which um, I think if you had to try, if you knew exactly what it was like going into it, then you might not go into it. But yeah. um, but also, it's amazingly rewarding as well afterwards and then what it means and the ability to then treat patients and 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 get the results that you know that you aspire to do so yeah i'm i'm certainly very you know very thankful that that i did it 
and and you know that that time I, I finished my pros program in you know 2013, which which seems it only seems like yesterday, but it was you know it was a reasonable time ago. But uh, I know sometimes in November you still you know you still wake up thinking, oh, hang on, have I was I meant to submit something or was something due? There's just always something about that November period there where you get a little bit on edge. Yeah, I think that's a, a common d- dentist nightmare, waking up and, you know, the exam's written in Spanish or something like that. Or <laughs> some, yeah, all those all those things never leave us. Yeah, my, my first daughter, Lucy, so she was, Wendy was heavily pregnant during my end of, end of first year exam period. And I remember giving my phone to the exam moderator and said, if, if my wife calls, that is because she's gone into labor and Okay. I'll have to jump on a plane, and I, I don't think the moderator was quite prepared to have, you know, be given that news right at the start of an exam. So okay. anyway, it all worked out well. Wendy, oh. I got, I managed to get back home just in time. Okay, yeah, all, all ends well. Yeah, and in terms of this this podcast, the overarching theme is communication, and obviously in your work in prosthodontics doing from I suppose from the simplest to the most complex case communication is a key skill I would imagine for you in that job oh definitely I think one of one of you know, the most important aspect that any dentist needs to have is to listen to what the patient is saying and I think you need to have some leading questions you need to build up a good rapport with with the patients very quickly and I think particularly in pros where, you know, they've been referred in because they either have had challenges with previous treatment or failure with previous treatment or um, they have a, a dental situation which other people do not want to treat or have had troubles treating. It's not often that you have someone who's had a, a fantastic you know, experience dentally to then end up on my doorstep. And so these, these patients, you do need to to listen and find out what they actually want to get from the treatment, because there's no point me going through and, and analyzing and assessing and treatment planning and treating and delivering an outcome, which is not what they actually wanted to have. So the you know being being able to listen and being empathetic and establishing what problems that they present with and their you know their prioritized problem list and 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 itemizing what all of these things are and i have lots of patients who then you know say when we've gone through that process they will you know you're the first person that actually asked what i would like and not being yeah. dictated to in in terms of how what the treatment that was going to be delivered or how it was going to be delivered. And and that falls through all in, into, you know, the complete range of treatment and their you know, involvement in decision-making in terms of, you know, their aesthetics set up and, and their yeah. um, aesthetic outcomes and, and shape and shade and characterization and all of those features where, you know, the patient is the one, you know, I can direct and educate and inform and, and and you know drive the treatment, but at, at the end of the day, it does need the patient's input to be able to to establish what we want that goal to be. Because if the patient if the patient's not happy at the end of treatment, then treatment is then not a success. Yep, you mentioned two things in particular: um, listening and forming rapport. I suppose something where 
specialists can be a bit on the back foot is that the general practitioners know their patients for a long time and they, they would have that rapport built with up with them over a number of years, whereas you guys are seeing the patient cold for the first time. Is there anything you do in particular to enhance that or accelerate that rapport building because you're you're seeing the patient for the first time, but you may have to do something very complex on them? Yeah, it's it's difficult to do. So sometimes, you know, I, I think the environment certainly helps. And by being referred to from from their original dentist, you know, the the patient does put a lot of faith and trust in you because they they know that I'm trusted by the referring dentist to be able to deliver the job. So I think that that also helps a lot. I think by being you know, a nice environment, warm, friendly environment, then the patient also can, you know, relax to a certain point and and not feel pressured as well. So, you know, my surgery, we've got lots of natural light, large, large open plan surgery so that there's there's space. I've got good distance between you know where the patient is and where I'm sitting I've got a computer screen right next to me that I can then take photos and and show them you know what their presenting situation is and what some of the problems are having a cone beam machines that I can take whatever imaging that I need as well on site and so I can then assess what's going on you know underneath the tissues as well as um, intraorally and then you know from that you know, by asking the right questions and and trying to then you know show an understanding of what the complexity of their problems are, and some of that just takes exposure to these patients extensively yeah. to be yeah. able to then work out you know quite quickly what the main problems are, how it needs to be managed, and then be able to give them a brief rundown into the process. So I think that they then also get an understanding that their problem is familiar. This is not the first time that I have treated that type of patient. This is something that I do all day, every day. And so then you can go through and let them know what the type of treatment that would be required, what the the treatment times would be, rough costs, um, processes. So then there's a lot of information which is being bombarded onto the patient and what I would then do is to give them, you know, the opportunity. They then go away. I, I process all the paperwork, send them out, you know, itemize specific lists of whatever is, is needed and then get them back for another discussion. And yeah. so sometimes, you know, I'd, I'd also need, you know, the patient to come in and we'd take either intraoral scans or impressions, face bows, jaw registrations, occlusal analysis, you know, to take the full full diagnostic set of material that I need so that I can then sit down and treatment plan appropriately. You know, often that's not able to be done just in a, you know, a, a half-hour consultation with the patients. You know, to get yeah. all the information that's needed does sometimes take time. So, you know, it's it's necessary to invest that time initially to get the big picture to be able to then plan for what the rehabilitation would be. So then, you know, maybe that second consultation where the patients had all the information presented to them, they can then, you know, be a lot more informed about the process. They've had the opportunity to think about questions that they might have um, to ask and then can go through, you know, that process. And sometimes the patient might go away and think about it 
for a little while or they might just want to you know get started as soon as possible so every, every patient is different not only clinically but also in the context of their management yeah and there's a couple of things you said there one is you instilling a sense giving a sense to the patient of your competence and your degree of skill and the fact that this is your job this is the stuff you do all day long and I suppose part of that comes from as well you alluded to as well the way that referring dentists as well certainly when I refer patients to you and Glenn it's always with a very positive slant a big note you up and say you guys are the people who do this all day long and you're the experts in the field and certainly I'm sure that makes a big difference when the patient presents yeah no and 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 I certainly appreciate uh appreciate the patients that you send and and the way that that happens because I think that it it does help my process knowing you know I, I don't get a lot of patients who just google me and and turn up on my doorstep there's you know an introduction from the patient uh from from the patient's general practitioner and there's already been I think that trust mechanism has already been started um from yeah. from the referral um the patients who you know, I'm sure that I don't see every single patient who who needs to be seen, you know, by a prosthodontist or, you know, who who has been referred to me. I'm sure that there are uh, some patients who even after that referral has been made that they decide, oh, no, now's not the right time. There's, there's sure. a lot of yeah. barriers psychologically to treatment and so some patients, you know, they might put it off for financial reasons or just that they don't feel it's the right time, they're too busy, or um, it's not only just a, a pain point of view that people will, you know, will put things off. And so when the patient presents, you know, a lot of the time, you know, they're, they're really ready for treatment. They've, they've made that active decision that they want something done, they, they know that they need something done, and the consequences of not doing something could be, could be quite severe. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so you don't get many tire kickers just coming in and kicking the tires and having a look and walking out again that when they come in to you, they're ready to go. Yeah, no, which is which is fortunate because um, yeah. every patient that you see, you know, you are allocating, you know, a lot of time. The fee for a consultation, you know, doesn't cover my overheads, but it's a necessary part of, of the process. And so, you know, you're you're trying to then impart as much knowledge as you can and and I treat and I see every patient as if they are going to be starting treatment at the next available session. But you know, thankfully, thankfully most most patients do. And if someone decides not to have treatment, I don't then refuse to ever see them again. You know, I understand that there might be you know a myriad of reasons why they're not not keen to proceed. And so you know, we've got processes set up to to track and to follow those and. And it might be that that patient's just not ready or they're not in a position to do it and they may or not do it you know, at, a, at a future time. But no, fortunately, touch wood, I, I don't have uh, a lot of patients who just come in and, you know, wanting per se to get the treatment plan for then someone else to go and, and attempt oh, the yeah. treatment. And in terms of those skills, where do you reckon that you learn them or is it something that's just in your personality? I, I know you you seem to be quite a calm, composed person from the person I know. 
and uh, I suppose some of that is is your own personality, and some of it is on the job. Either f- did you learn any? Were there any formal communication skills modules in your specialization, or uh, you learned it through working in your mentoring time in the Branamark Centre? Or, or where do you think that comes from? Yeah, I, I think there's. It is probably part of it is is a num is you know is multifaceted. I think part of it is probably a personality side of things, as you said, being able to calmly approach things. And, and I think that helps, you know, instill confidence in a patient if, you know, even from a either examination treatment discussion point of view, or, you know, when you're actively doing treatment, I don't think patients would be too enthusiastic if you were um, seen to be, you know, struggling with something. Yeah, or, high, or highly strung and checking your <laughs> instruments at the nurse and all that sort of stuff. Sh- yeah. Shouting or screaming at, at, at your staff or patients is probably not a good practice builder. Um, no. But then I, th- I think certainly through through aspects of university, I think through undergrad, I'm sure that there were units or discussions then in terms of how to, how to manage and discuss patients in terms of the, the PROS program. I can't remember any specifics with that, but I think certainly spending time with other with other practitioners during my undergraduate, after graduation, during my programs, and and when you go and do you know CPD. I mean, I I still need to go and do my hours of, of CPD, and but I mean, I I might source that somewhere else. You know, I might travel overseas to 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 go and see you know key people, or interstate to go and see key people, or you know see people where. If they're you know coming here to Perth or organised to bring people to Perth and and so you know spending time you know formally and informally with with a range of people I think just helps or has helped me to just develop how I might talk to patients and um, and relate to patients and find find a way to understand what they're dealing with and and uh, to be able to then convey you know a solution to their problem and. And to then, you know, translate that into actual treatment delivery. That makes sense. I suppose if you you're exposed to lots of different people and different personalities, I suppose one one common theme is that everybody does things slightly differently, and and I suppose you can pick the best of what different people do and amalgamate that into one way of doing things that suits you and your personality. Yes, definitely, definitely. And so, I mean, if I look back and think about, you know, who my key mentors, you know, are, I think certainly Pat Henry and, and Glenn Lidlow here, you know, at the Bronnermark Centre have been instrumental in, in terms of what I do and how I do it. You know, Ivan Kleinberg, the professor and head of my, my PROS program, a lot of the discussions and, you know, formally and informally with him as well. Some of the key people involved in in training during the program over in Sydney, Terry Walton and and Danielle Layton. So you know some of these people who are highly published authors and and also very skilled clinicians and and just yes yeah, spending spending time and just understanding what they do in their practice and how that works for them and situations that they might you know might deal with it. But then other times, yeah, if I'm going, I think, you know, one of my recent trips last year was to go to, to Queensland. There was a, he's, he's an amazing clinician, Inaki Gambarina from, from Spain. It was organised through the Australian Academy of Prosthodontics. And, and so, you know, it was a three, I think a three-day program with him. So not only involved in the didactic, but 
you know, when you're spending you know, breakfast, lunch, dinners, you know, around, you know, around these people as well, you know, you get a, a really thorough understanding of, of them as a person and that, that all helps. Yeah. Okay. A big part of your communication with the patient is gaining, for want of a better way of describing it, informed consent for, for these potentially large and complex and potentially expensive treatment plans. And we all know that no matter what the implant system is or who the surgeon is, there's a recognized percentage failure rate of implants, whether it be in the maxilla, there's a percentage in the mandible, there's a percentage. How do you have that conversation with patients, especially when they're investing a lot of time and finances in the process with you? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of my my practice, I spend, you know, probably 30% of 30 to 40 percent of my time doing implant surgery and then probably another 30 percent of that would be implant pros and and the rest sort of you know tooth borne pros or or removable pros and so i'm i'm having this discussion every day what i do is i assess the situation uh, i'm analyzing you know what's going on what the patient's needs are what their risk profile is and then trying to sort of categorize them, you know, seeing as to what their expected outcome would be from a literature point of view. And I think that's one thing which the PROS program or any specialty program does is it really trains you in understanding and interpreting the literature. It's not okay. all just about the skill set of what you do with your hands. It's also about the brain training. And and I think that was that was something which took me, you know, a little bit of time you know, doing the the initial parts of the program where Professor Kleinberg was very, you know, particular about punctuation or formal aspects of a presentation of a slide, you know, how many words or lines on a slide or little things like that. But it's it's all of that just entrenched training into then being able to assess things and, and critically analyze them. So then every patient that I'm talking about, whether it be for you know, a single implant or multi-implant prosthesis or a full jaw implant reconstruction, whether that be, you know, immediate or delayed, whether the single implant's immediately loaded or delayed loaded, or if there's grafting or if I need to do sinus augmentations or, you know, any of these aspects, you know and understand from a literature point of view, but also by tracking your own treatments and working out what your own success and survival rates are you can't present to a patient and say look you know the success of of this treatment is going to be 95% at 10 years because you know unless you're the one that's actually written that article then that's not not something which you know you're able to say yeah. so you you have to present it in terms of current literature population based studies you know systematic reviews published in you know good peer reviewed journals by good people and so then I can, you know, I can tell the patient, you know, what I expect, you know, the outcome to be from a, um, and I always tell it from a literature point of view and then also say, and, you know, what I would expect it to be in their particular circumstance with any potential comorbidities that they may have, um, okay. whether yeah. they're a smoker or a diabetic or they've had, you know, radiotherapy or any other aspects from from there or depending on what their available bone volume is or their tissue characteristic type so so I try to then sort of funnel all that down and and um, and give them a realistic picture as to what um, what I'd expect their individual outcome to be 
then it's a matter of then delivering the treatment as well. So then you can be key on your literature knowledge, but if you're hand skills don't then match up to that, then you can have a problem. So it's then making sure that clinically you can talk the talk and, and walk the walk. Yep. Okay. So probably also from, from a, an informed consent point of view, you know, I, I, all, I go through with, with every, every patient from that perspective what their problems are, what their treatment options are as well. So not if a patient might be referred in for a placement of a single implant, you know, I still assess as to see well whether that patient needs treatment, whether that patient would be suitable for a denture, for a bridge. Every aspect is discussed and then focusing then on what, you know, what the patient would like to have and what is yeah. you know, clinically possible as well. So the patient does need to have a, you know, they need to have that full, full range of, of options presented and not just oh, there's a site, there we go, we can just drop an implant into there and, and move along because not not every site needs to have an implant and certainly not every site that I get referred for a patient to have an implant gets an implant. So there's mm-hmm. lots of times where it's not the most appropriate form of treatment or it's not necessary for that patient and so treatment doesn't proceed unless it's necessary. So it's a whole much more complex process than sticking a sheet of paper under somebody's nose and asking them to sign it and then thinking you've got informed consent. Obviously, it's all that clinical experience you have, all that training you have, and also your, your, your practical knowledge of the particular situation of the, of the patient sitting in front of you and you're putting all that information together. Yeah, and it's interesting as well because if um, you know, thankfully I haven't had the situation, but from hearing about it, if you can have go through the process, you can have a patient, you know, sign document giving you informed consent, and you know, if there's a problem in a court of law, if all the patient then needs to say is, well, they didn't actually understand what yeah. they were signing, and everything that you've gone through um, from a consent point of view is out the window. So I think, you know, spending the time with the patient, establishing the rapport, giving them an understanding of what is going on and what the process involves in as many aspects as is possible, you know, from from start to finish, covering all of that, you know, the letter that I send to to patients, whether it be for for a single tooth implant or a full arch, you know, all on four, for instance, you know, that, that letter might be five or six pages. And it's tailored to their specific situation with their, you know, their specific outcome in mind. So then there's a paper trail. They're, they're not just in for a consultation, swipe your credit card on the way out and then, yeah. and then you're having yeah. something, you know, a surgical procedure done the next day. So, no, the, yeah, there certainly needs to be an appropriate time as well. I, from treatment consultation to treatment, actual treatment delivery, there's usually a lag time just in terms of you know, availability and that's actually yeah. quite good as well because that then that then gives the patients the opportunity to digest what has been presented to them and to then help with that that rapport and understanding between myself and the patient to see that yes they're happy with it everything is is you know we're, we're both happy we're both agreed this is what we're going to do now it's just a matter of going forth and doing the treatment yep in this process are there any 
tricky aspects that come up time and time again or any particular trip wires where there's an easy place to fall over or or a type of patient that is difficult to gauge when you're going through this informed consent process? I mean, it's it's challenging because I think in in the prosthodontic world, you know, most of the patients that I see, they've already had they've already had something not go well for them, whether it be what they've done to their own dentition or what someone has done to their to their dentition or combination of the both or just be yeah. facets of time. So so to then get them on board with what is actually needed and appropriate applicable treatment, a lot of these patients, you know, I think would fall into that tricky range. And so I don't think there's sort of one one key aspect to that. I think the 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 most important thing that I do is to spend the time, you know, well first first and foremost, appropriately assess the patient. Radiographically, clinically, photography wise, you know, I've got all the information that I need to then formulate, you know, the appropriate treatment plan with them to then be able to sit down with that patient and present a a sequential, well-ordered, well-structured, easy-to-understand treatment and doing it in lay terms as well. If you start going into the complexities, as I think we often do as clinicians and and yeah. you know, when you're giving lectures and, and talking to colleagues, you know, we, we slip into, you know, all our dental terminology, whereas a patient, they don't know what a canine is or an incisor. They just know them as teeth. And so then breaking it down just into lay terms that they can understand, I think, is is a key a key factor. Yeah. And doing yeah, it in a way that the patient feels that they're involved in the conversation and not just being spoken to or spoken down to. Yeah, so pitching it at their level of understanding. And to gauge that level of understanding, you have to have spent time with them in that opening process to sort of gauge where they're at and what they want, as you said earlier on, and also what level of understanding they have as well. Yeah. So in my surgery, so I, I touched on earlier, so I've got the, you know, the patient chair in the center of the room. I've got a, um, a large computer screen next to, to them. I'll take some photos of, you know, a, a facial photo, intraoral photos just quickly so that I can you know, put those up on the screen and show them key features. It might be in terms of occlusal cants or tooth proportionality discrepancies or rates of wear, problems of breakdown of teeth favorable or unfavorable aspects you know patients that might be the first time that they've seen you know people have told them they've got periodontal disease and then they can actually see what you know what that redness around the the gum tissues actually is so having you know having good quality images that the patient can see directly that really helps now also in in my surgery I've got two individual you know lounge chairs so often there'll be a family member present and so then, you know, they're involved in the communication um, and discussion as well. So it might be the, the patient's, you know, husband or wife. And so then there's, you know, there's a, an open conversation with everyone as to what, you know, what the problems are. So everything has to be open and upfront. You know, I can't sugarcoat to say, look, this, you know, you have this problem and but you don't have this problem. Everything has to be, has to be clear cut because I'm accountable for that. And having, yeah. having documentation of what the patient starts with initially, it's easy to then show after I've done you know, a diagnostic wax up, for instance, and then you know, I might do a mock-up of that inside the mouth and then I can show them 
you know, this is what your presentation starting uh, situation is and this is what I'm expecting your outcome to be. So I'm not just Photoshopping something onto a screen and showing an unrealistic outcome that they might have. I'm giving them nice, you know, clarity as to what what's achievable or what's not. Because there are some situations which what the patient perceives as, as what their outcome would be might not be clinically achievable. And so yes. having good good photographic record of, of starting positions is certainly key in, in all the communications that, that I have with the patient. And, you know, often if, if that at the consultation, if a patient hasn't brought a family member, you know, with them, then, you know, say, look, do you want to bring your husband or do you want to bring your wife to the next time we catch up so that they can see or they might have some questions? And and I get a lot of patients as well who they're very receptive to that because that might not be something that their dentist has encouraged them to do. And a treatment, you know, full mouth rehabilitation treatment or a single implant, you know, surgery, different, you know, some people don't want anyone else to know what's going on, but major reconstructive work, the patient's direct family know what's going on and are involved in that and are a yeah. very useful support mechanism during the treatment. So it's it's good to have it's good to have other people involved. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of benefit to that in, in the majority of cases. Yeah, because often patients come in and they walk out and they barely know whether it was a male or a female that saw them, never mind what yes. you've talked about. So having, yes, having somebody there, even in that, especially in that consent process, but even just going through all the options and everything else does make a lot of sense. Is there sometimes a degree of expectation management or reality checking as well. I saw somebody talking on a forum today about a patient bringing in, you know, a picture of Angelina Jolie from a magazine and saying, I want to look like that. Do, do you ever have to go through that process with patients? Oh, I have that often. Yeah, I, I, I have that often um, okay. in terms of what, what patients will, uh, you know, what they would like to be. And, and it's just a matter of managing those personalities and in terms of then what's realistic and what's achievable and what's possible in that patient's, you know, directly and, and what what actually might be the real situation and not something that's been photoshopped to the nth degree just to just for a magazine quality. But that's what's uh, true. I, yeah. I'll often have elderly patients bringing in photos, you know, their wedding their wedding photo saying, you know, I'd like my teeth to look like this again and and you know, forgetting the fifty years that's gone by with the rest of their yeah. facial tissue tone or other features and so no it's it's just about it's then you know I dive into then what is it about that particular photo or that particular celebrity that you're bringing that image in what is it about that that you would like to have for you and and it just it might be possible to achieve or it might not be in terms of arch shape or arch length or buckle corridor or tooth position you know there's so it's just then about educating the patient as to what's clinically achievable Okay, that's an interesting way of looking at it, of of not just, you know, saying, ah, oh, that, that's not going to happen, actually delving in a little bit more and finding out what, what specifically is it. And it may be something that it, there may be a degree of achievability in what they actually specifically want. Yeah. Yeah, no, I find that good because there has to be a reason why they've brought that image in. You know, they've, they've spent mm. time choosing that image to, to see. And sometimes I've had patients bring in, you know, almost an encyclopedia of volume of images that they want. So then it's, well, this this photo is very different to, you know, to this second photo. 
you know, you think they're the same. What is it about each of them that actually you like? Because if I follow, you know, picture A, that's not going to be looking like picture B. And following on from the work you do, obviously in private practice, the the, the pros work. You you also work in the public system as well. And, and we talked a little bit about that before coming on air. It, it's sort of a, a different kind of work you do. You work in Royal Perth Hospital in the Head and Neck Cancer Clinic, and you also work in the Perth Children's Hospital as part of a team as well, um, managing uh, dental deficiencies, AI and DI. Can you speak a bit more about that as well? Both of the the, the public positions that I have and the, the consultant positions that I have at each of those hospitals are, are quite different. But these patients are not often the types of patients that you would see in your routine practice, even as a specialist. And so they're often the really challenging patients. And that's why I really enjoy it, because I get to think about, you know, what the problems are, how I'm going to go about providing a solution to these patients and and then getting to, you know, deliver a great outcome to someone where the, the degree of difference to their lives can be you know, exponentially improved. So yeah. down at down at Royal Perth, the Head and Neck Cancer Clinic. Um, so the the type of work there, patients who for eligibility for those patients, they have to have had something removed um, in the oral maxillofacial region. And so the the team of maxillofacial surgeons and um, ENTs and plastics, you know, work together to take out what's necessary, put back what's there, and so. So my role as the as you know one of the prosthodontists on the team is planning, working out what we want the final outcome to be, and then you know working with the team to then get that result. So we've been doing a lot of work recently in in terms of fibular grafts. Um, so part of the maxilla or the mandible or all of it will be removed, and then you know we we work preoperatively to plan what the the bone reconstruction is going to be, which then dictates, you know, which parts of the bone are taken or the position of, of those bones, uh, how that's all going to be joined together to then, you know, replace the base structures. And so the the Max Fats and Plastics um, guys, you know, do that part of the treatment. And then there's the opportunity to then have the implants in the correct spot. So then I can go and, and build the reconstruction on the top of that. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of that going on, which is sort of the, the more sort of cutting edge aspects of, yeah, uh, yeah. of, of pros and, and um, reconstructive surgery and, and also patients who, you know, before that era who might have large fistulas and oronasal communications and making obturators or dentures or other types of devices, which they can then have, you know, an improvement in their quality of life. So some of these patients, you know, they might not have been able to wear a denture or might not have been able to have teeth for a long time. So then being able to uh, to actively treat them and, and get something which um, can really improve their ability to eat, smile, function. And, and you know, some, some patients who have just not wanted to spend time out in public because they're, you know, too embarrassed about their, their dental disfigurement. So so those are really, you know, really rewarding patients that I see down yeah. at um, down at rural Perth, at the Children's Hospital. Yeah, been working down at the Children's Hospital for about ten years or or so now. So these the, the, the patients that I often see are amelogenesis imperfecta or dentinogenesis imperfecta, um, some oligodontia, hyperdontia, and as well as involvement in the uh, the cleft lip and palate patients. So. 
the, the team at the children's hospital, so we have the max fact surgeons, plastics, perio, ortho, pros, the peds. So it's a great multidisciplinary team that we have. And so, you know, we'll, we have monthly meetings where we go through and, and analyze and assess patients and plan their treatment. And so there, you know, a lot of these patients have been in the system for, you know, a long time, you know, 10 or 12 years before I, you know, might see them face to face. But the, the important part is to get the plan right. So I'll often sort of start seeing seeing the patients clinically, you know, when their sort of psychosocial development starts to become affected. So that might be okay. early teenage years. And, yeah. and so then, you know, particularly with the, the sort of the cohort of the AI cases, which I see a lot of, they might have had stainless steel crowns put on their posterior teeth and composite crowns put on their anterior teeth in early mid-childhood and so then now they're starting to get a bit of you know teasing or bullying by friends at school or um, interest in boyfriends girlfriends and things like that and so they often will start to become a bit more introverted and family members will pick up on that and so you know then it's a process of what can we do to change that put something in the mouth that's that's going to uh, really improve their quality of life and their so they can just go back to just being fun, active kids again, get them through to a stage where developmentally that they're going to be suitable for more of a major reconstruction. And because that, for instance, might be, you know, crowning 28 teeth. And right. they're certainly very busy clinics. If I'm, if I'm doing that, that might, you know, I might do an arch, you know, in a session. And so the outcome for those patients is, is amazing. And, and, when you deliver a full mouth of crowns and and the smile and the tears coming from the patient and the patient's family, they're great days. You can certainly see the impact that you're having on those patients, and it's it's a really rewarding clinical experience that I get to to help these help these kids out with. Yeah, it must be very very rewarding, as you say. And a big aspect of that as well would, I suppose, in both roles is part of being in a team as well, which must be exciting as well, working with all these different people in different disciplines. There, there must be a degree of communication involved there and getting along with the other team members and fitting into your part of, of the flow of the patient's journey. How does that all work? Is, is it that you know, you know you've been together for so long and you've got a really well-established team? Is, that, or is there more yeah, to it than that? There's an aspect of that. Um, you certainly need to... You need to have an understanding of, of the other members of the team, you know, how they work and, and their preferred techniques and, and outcomes that they're going to be able to get in, in different situations and and getting everyone together to actually um, formulate that unified treatment plan is key to that. And I think that's maybe something I didn't mention earlier on in the piece about, you know, the role as a prosthodontist is you're often the, you know, the director of traffic. So it might be that you know, I do everything for a patient or I coordinate aspects and then engage, you know, other people for things along along the way. And so, you know, with these these patients at um, at both the hospitals, you know, the, having great team of consultants around who are able to do their respective aspects and, and you know that you can get a great result, you know, the orthodontist will, if I ask, you know, can I get another 0.25 millimetre or can I rotate that tooth 15 degrees, you know, I'm going to get that outcome, which then makes that my delivery of the of the prosthetics 
easier or yeah. the outcome is better. And so, you know, all of, but often these things need to be planned much, much earlier in the piece. So the forward thinking in establishing the orthodontic plan or what we're going to do or when we need to have some crown lengthening done, what's going to happen with those teeth, do we need, you know, when's the, the cleft lip and palate process in terms of closure of the closure of the defects and, and when the bone grafting, you know, those have been well and truly entrenched at Perth Children's Hospital and formerly Princess Margaret Hospital for a long period of time. So a lot of that enables me to just sort of come in at, at the end of it and and then work to, you know, formulate the smile afterwards. But in in some cases, you know, you would inherit something that's been going on. Patient might have moved from interstate or overseas and you know, they haven't had maybe as much preemptive planning. And one of the really hard aspects of pros is to try to make a, a large canine tooth look like a small gracile lateral incisor. <laughs> yes. And so so if I can be involved in the planning early and then make sure that whatever this, the end result is going to be the simplest thing for me, that will often also give the patient the best um, the best aesthetic outcome. And so that might be that, yes, the orthodontic plan needs to change. You know, we don't want that central next to that canine. We'd rather, you know, maybe take out a, a premolar, shift the canine back and give room for, you know, for an implant or a resin bonded bridge or, or something else there. So so the the unified treatment planning approach is um, is critical for the the outcome for these patients. And and it's a great team. You know, we're we're really fortunate here in Perth to have have both facilities and the children's hospital. I, I think if, if I had a child with a cleft anywhere in Australia and I think a lot of places globally, then I'd be moving to Perth straight away because I think the results that we we can achieve with these patients is second to none. Okay, that's that's a really ringing endorsement of what yeah, what the specialists are doing here in Perth. That's that's amazing. Yeah, I, I think you, you do hear that about a lot of things in Perth. I don't know whether it's a product of our isolation that certainly medically, dentally, there's a really high standard across the board, possibly because we have to do everything here in in such an isolated space. I don't know if that has anything to do with it or it's just a... I think it, I think it does. And I think also by being isolated, um, if, if you look at... You know, lots of lots of specialists, and in, in, and you know, speaking again about the consultants at the Children's Hospital and at Royal Perth, a lot of the people have spent time at other places at various times in their career, and whether it be for you know short stints or long stints, you know, spending time with with good people. You know, the, I think people here in Perth often will try to track down the you know the leaders of the field to then gain their skills. As, as opposed to going, oh, you know, he's my direct competition and so, you know, I don't, I don't want to acknowledge that he's really good. I'm going to go, you know, just do this my own way. And mm-hmm. so, no, I, I think here in Perth the mentality I think is, is really good that people are, are willing to go and, and develop their skills with, you know, with the global leaders and come back and, and then also pass on that knowledge to other people in in their particular professions so that the you know for the benefit of the of the greater number of people yeah it's pretty amazing and as you say bringing that knowledge back and then passing it on and that's also something that you do as well you do some teaching and mentoring i know you mentioned right at the start the the programs in the Branamark center and and me and the, the dentists in our practice have all done the storing the implant in the Branamark center and you do some 
work with the ADA CPD committee and you teach a photography course as well. And I think you do a lot of speaking and, and teaching as well in, in other areas. Where do you find even time for all that stuff? <laughs> the some, some years I do look back and I think, yeah, how did I manage to, to fit all of those things in? And, and I think I, mm. I do have to, uh, again, acknowledge my very understanding wife and, and family for giving me the opportunity to, you know, to do these things. And it's sometimes, yeah, when, when you're writing a lecture program, you know, it might be a one or a two day lecture program that you're presenting, you know, overseas and you have to then factor in the day of traveling that you're doing on top of that. When you actually get back from it, you realize, oh, how did I, how did I actually manage to, to do that? And maybe that's just one part of the pros training program as you get used to functioning on, on a lot less sleep. Yeah. Uh, but uh, no, it's it's something where you know I enjoy obviously my patient treatment and, and delivering the treatment, but I do enjoy educating and helping and assisting you know clinicians get the best results that they can as well. And so yeah, with things with the university, undergraduate, postgraduate, and and as you mentioned, other courses here through the Bronnemark Centre with with the restorative and surgical programs that that we run you know routinely here and. And then other ones through the ADA, and um, and you know I've I've given lecture programs across you know many facets of of dentistry, implants and crown and bridge and smile analysis and you know digital technologies and and photography and so you know if if someone approaches me and asks for a topic that they're interested, there's there's usually some some material that I have there which I can you know throw together into. <laughs> Okay. into a lecture for for people because it's I, it's it's something that I enjoy and by doing doing those that also keeps me up to date with the literature as well because you know I have to make sure that what I'm talking about is the the most current evidence-based perspective yeah t- certainly teaching I've done a few courses in terms of the communication side of things I find you nearly learn more from teaching than actually being the student. The, the the process of putting material together is a huge learning process as well, which is very beneficial. Definitely, definitely. And and I think as mentioned just yeah, with the literature point of view, because if you might, you know, when you're discussing with a patient a treatment philosophy or a treatment technique or an expect expected outcome for, you know, their particular case and then you know, you're giving a lecture and you go, oh, actually, you know, so-and-so just published an article recently and it talked about this little variance or previous treatment technology only allowed that type of outcome or something that you've been doing for a long period of time that you know has a better outcome than what the literature might, you know, might report. So, yeah, it's, um, I'd agree, I'd agree. I think when you're, when you're teaching and it forces you to, to make sure that you're top of the game. Yes, yeah, definitely. And something else that we, I talk about that ties in a little bit with, in terms of communication is stress management. Now, on the on the surface of things, when you're talking about doing fibular grafts and full arch reconstruction, full full, full mouth implant, and those sorts of things, it would seem on paper that doing all this high end work could be a a more stressful thing, or is it just the fact that because of your work and training and qualifications it's just as routine to doing a class to a composite for me does that make sense that question yeah, is, think, is there a yeah is there a higher stress level related to doing that sort of work 
Well, it's in this you know era of the COVID restricted practice, and I've been doing some of the homeschooling and and teaching my you know my daughters so three, five, and and eight. You know, I find some of that more stressful than <laughs> than doing a doing a full mouth of implants. I, I can second that one. Yeah, I, yeah. I know what you're talking about. I think the when when I'm working and, and you know using the example of you know of of a immediate you know all on four, so it might be terminal dentition, patients having a complete upper denture and all on four and a low uh, in the mandible with then immediate bridge the next day. The mechanics of the of the process, you're just in the groove to a certain point. You know you're so focused in in what's going on and confident in the management and what needs to be done that I, I don't find it stressful. I find it, it's tiring. You know, at the end of the day, you are, you're mentally exhausted, but up until the time that you have, you know, the final tools down, then everything, the, the, the environment is well controlled, managed, and, and it's, it's a process that you're going through. There are certain times and, and certainly, you know, procedures when, when you're doing, you know, complex procedures that access might be very difficult or anatomy might be difficult or there might be things that are very high risk to a patient. And, and yeah. for those, those aspects, yes, I think, you know, certainly you need to be very considered in, in your approach and you need to be very careful with, with what you're doing and you need to be very focused. And, and again, maybe that's something which the, the PROS program does help with but also I think um, familiarity and and you know experience comes into it is just the ability to not become robotic because it's certainly not it's not every process is exactly the same but it's it's doing doing things in a, a really controlled environment and by controlling the environment I find that that um, probably alleviates some of the some of the stress and but I, I think also you have to be aware that these procedures are you know there's a lot at stake and and so you can't be blase about it you can't function unless you're top of top of your game and and you know if you've got other distractions or things going on well then you probably you know you probably shouldn't be doing what you're doing that day so so then having having stability work life home life environment working you know all of these types of things just means that you can just focus on focus on the patient that you're treating and and not be focused not be distracted by by anything else so yeah. then it's just you know doing making sure you're always doing the right thing being accountable for what you do yep is there anything you consciously do to manage stress and we and I often talk to my guests about the importance of activities away from dentistry You've obviously got a life, a professional life that's very immersed in dentistry. Do you do things away? Obviously, you've got family and that as well, but are there any activities, pastimes, or anything you do to consciously get yourself away from dentistry, or do you believe in the importance of doing that? Oh, no, it's critically important to have have time away. And so, you know, I've I've got a lot of good close school friends who I, I still see routinely and, and regularly and, and none of none of those are, are dentists and it's not that I'm adverse to having good friends who are dentists because I've got you know lots and lots of those as well but I think having having the opportunity to take a step away from dentistry and, and having other hobbies so you know photography as well as you know my 
my dental photography. I think photography would be my biggest outlet outside of my family and nothing beats walking in the door and, you know, having the, the, the kids there and, and the time that I love spending with, with them. But, you know, photography, I, I do a lot of um, landscape photography and, and just getting involved in, in sort of drone photography as well. Yeah. Um, I always try to take a bit of time at um, every school holidays and to, again, just let my brain relax and, and get away from it. And fortunate that one of my brother-in-laws, they're farmers down at Manjumup, so I don't get mobile reception when I'm when I'm down yeah. there. So I can I can go down and be completely off the grid and we can go camping and, and the kids can jump in puddles and get muddy and just do do everything that's that's different to what we do or what I do day to day so that then when I get back into surgery that then I'm focused and not distracted and and I can then make sure that you know make sure I, I'm doing everything that I should be doing yeah it seems to be a, a recurring theme uh, like I'm qualified 26 years you're obviously qualified a long time it seems to be a recurring theme from experienced dentists uh, particularly if there are listeners to this who are students or new graduates to do something away from dentistry as well as you said to relax your brain to sort of tune out for a while so that when you get back to it, I suppose you, your batteries are charged up and you're ready to go again. And yeah, and dentistry is a stressful job as well. Yeah, and I think it's important, sort of physically as well, to keep the the body you know, reasonably physically fit. I don't run marathons or or anything like that, but I do a couple of training classes with some with some friends every week, and and that's always a, a good outlet to go and just talk about what's happening in the footy or you know what's yeah. been happening in in people's lives again outside of everything dental and and then I think that all helps as well in terms of the physical outlet what we do clinically you know we're it's not physically exertive so being able to then use up some of that energy and, and get the body going is is useful as well and then other you know other creative aspects I enjoy cooking for instance and so that's that's nice as well to go and spend some time doing that and help help out you know at home and teaching or you know making meals with the girls and Hmm. no it's I think it's it's definitely as you've said it's really important to have an outlet that you enjoy so that you can just have some time away dentistry I think is very immersive and and I know, you know, some practices it can be quite insular where there might be, you know, one dentist and their immediate staff and so they they might not get a lot of interaction with other clinicians and and you know, I think I'm fortunate in that regard with my positions at the other hospitals and and the type of practice and what I do is that I'm I'm always having a chat to other dentists and and you know, routinely get, you know, emails or text messages or phone calls, you know, from dentists so, you know, can you help me out with this or just wanting some advice on this? But before that happens, it's, oh, you know, how are you going? What's been happening here? You know, you, you get to know people very well over over the time. And, and so that's that's nice to, to just, I think, help people get out of their surgery if, if they're not getting a lot of exposure to that. And I think that's something that's important as well. If people yeah. feel that they're in that environment, well, there's CPD courses that you get to go to, you know, to, to see other people, but also, yeah, just reaching out to other other dental colleagues that you know and might be going catch up and have a coffee with them or just something so that you can then go and chew the fat about, you know, what's been going on and you might find that they've got a, a tip that might help you with a, 
a treatment that you're you know, just about to do or or things there. So and I, I, I agree. I think having some congeniality with, with other colleagues is really useful. Yeah. And in terms of finishing up, are there any particular resources such as books, websites, podcasts, if you're into podcasts, that you would recommend for dentists in terms of either communication or pros or what I suppose the work that you do? In terms of resources you know, from websites, you know, here in WA, if people are looking for, you know, or they're trying to reach out and, and build a relationship to get that multidisciplinary approach for, you know, for their patients, you know, there's the Dental Specialist Society of, of WA, which is in existence. I was the president of that a couple of years ago. And, and that's a great, you know, network of interested specialists who who are involved and active in the dental community. And we have with that regular, you know, meetings and lectures and catch-ups, not just as specialists but you know with with general practitioners as well to yeah so is it purely for specialists or is it accessible to gdp to be a member yeah okay the the group you know the the dsswa website has then you know links of all the of all the members so then that might be someone who goes oh look you know who's who's a, a periodontist in my area or something like yeah. that. You can and just, they do sometimes have meetings that are open to everybody as well, I see from time Yeah, so every, at least once a year there's a there's a lecture meeting which yeah. is run by DSSWA for general dentists. So just, again, just as another avenue of trying to help people um, from an education point of view and form relationships with people. I mean, other other websites, again, like that in terms of, you know, things dental, I'm probably not the best person to ask because I seem to be doing too much other, too many okay. other things. Um, but the book side of things, some useful reading material. There is a book which I got online from a photography point of view, which I think is really useful. It's available on Apple Books or whatever it is. Um, it's called Interactive Dental Photography by uh, Gabor Matyasi. That's okay. a really useful one just in terms of dental techniques and information. Yes, I, you know, I, I give lots of lectures on dental photography around yeah. the place, but I think that's that's a really good um, good resource. In terms of pros, one of the things which I think people you know, would get a lot of benefit from is is you know that initial diagnostic diagnostics and assessment of you know of a smile and Fradiani, Maru Fradiani, he's probably the, the godfather of that. He he's published two books, um, Aesthetic Rehabilitation and The Fixed Dentition, and they're just amazing. It's 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 a really well-written publication which just guides the, the practitioner through what diagnostic material to collect, how to analyse it, how to formulate a treatment plan. And so I, I think, yeah, I, I recommend that book extensively because i think it's you know, it's one of the best dental books that we have going around and it should be a it should be a textbook to the undergraduates um, okay yep so it's accessible to to any level yeah it's published by quintessence so it's not the cheapest book going around but yep. in terms of quality yeah it, it's amazing and then probably the, the one which i've yeah, spent the most time recently from a implant surgery and, and reconstructive aspects would be um, one by Inyaki Gambarina and Marcus Blatz called Evolution. And so Gambarini is, is a is a really thought-provoking clinician in, in terms of 
treatment philosophy and outcomes um, from a, a grafting point of view around implants and and yeah, I think he's you know revolutionised certain treatment procedures and and he's the you know the godfather of tuberosity grafts and and using different shaped healing abutments around implants and how to achieve you know how to achieve predictable outcomes. So yeah, he's he's an amazing clinician, really nice guy, and and yeah, his his book is again really really exciting to read. Okay, yeah. Evolution. That, that's a very enigmatic title. So yeah, uh, that's easy to remember. I'll put, I'll try and find those and put links to those in the show notes. So that that's easy to do. So yeah, we'll we'll finish up. It's been a, a long day for you. I think you you said you'd been in at work and you'd had a meeting then after that, and now you're you've given up your time to talk to me. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that, Graham. It's been really uh, interesting, insightful, and a few tips here and there along the way as well. So. Thank you very much for your time and, and, yeah, for speaking to me today. No, thanks, Colin. Appreciate the invitation. And- yeah. Okay. Thanks. I want to thank Graham for the conversation today. It was very enlightening. And one big takeaway for me from this conversation was that in order to communicate, diagnose, treatment plan and execute at such a high level requires a hidden background of years of hard work and dedication. As always, if you found value in this episode, please share with colleagues who would benefit. And also, take a second to swipe right for five stars in the review section. I look forward to you joining me again for the next episode of the Communicating Health Podcast.